The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Philippians. It's in the back of your Bible. Near the end, right between Titus and Hebrews, very short book. That's where we've been. If you'll have a bulletin, you'll note it says Philemon Part 3. So if you haven't been here the last week or two, just to bring you up to speed, we're in Part 3 of the book of Philemon, going through that wonderful little book. And that's where we'll be today, Philemon Part 3. And today's point of emphasis is true forgiveness. As you're turning there, just a couple of things on the back table is a brochure available. Uh, Decision America, California Tour. Franklin Graham is coming to town. Franklin's a wonderful man of God and someone I've been able to meet a few times. And he's going to be in the area. It's got a list of dates. He's going to be in Santa Clara on May 31st and also in Berkeley on June 1st at 7.30. He'll be preaching. Jeremy Camp will be doing music. It's free. So if you're interested in that, um, he'll just be preaching the gospel. If you're able to go, bring someone who doesn't know Christ. That's the whole point. You will be blessed. Also, today is we have the privilege of having communion or the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. We do that once a month, usually about the fourth Sunday of the month. So we'll have our children stay here who usually go to children's church. Uh, if you're one of the children, actually 12th grade on down is invited to take notes in your handout there and then put your name on that and then turn that back into me and then look at that. Someone took really good notes. This is Liam. Um, so Liam, after the service, you can pick up your wonderful notes. He filled in the blanks. Great job. Good discipline. Wait, what's that? Oh, a little, yeah, something to rot your teeth from your pastor. I should start taping toothbrushes to these, but anyway. So to invite our young ones to take notes uh, as best you can as we study God's Word together. Well, with that, let's go ahead and go to uh, the book of Philemon, and then we have the privilege after that we'll take communion, and we can even use the sermon to prepare our hearts for communion, taking the Lord's Supper, which is an invitation to anybody who's a Christian. You don't have to be a member of this church to take communion. You just have to know Jesus Christ personally, and there's no better way to prepare our hearts than to talk about the theme of the day that I put there on the sermon outline, and that is forgiveness, Philemon part three, forgiveness. So if you're in the book of Philemon there, let's go ahead and look at it. And it's 25 verses. We've introduced the main characters. We've introduced the background and the context, so I won't belabor that. But there are a couple of themes and even the content of the latter part of the book that we haven't been able to talk much about yet, so we'll do that today. But I will start with this. If you were to pick up a commentary on the book of Philemon, and I have many, they will a good Bible commentary will tell you what the main theme of the book is that you're studying in the Bible. And pretty much all Bible teachers are agreed about what the main theme of Philemon is. The overarching theme is forgiveness. And I agree with that. As a matter of fact, it's the only book in the Bible entirely dedicated to one theme, the theme of forgiveness. It's an important message, forgiveness. We need that reminder. It's done in the context not of a parable, because this is actually a true story, or a bunch of, it's not done through a bunch of theological principles, or didactic theological 
commands. It's done through a personal letter from the Apostle Paul to actually a friend of his, Philemon, who the Apostle Paul was able to give the gospel to, and Philemon came to Christ. So he became a Christian through the ministry of the Apostle Paul while Paul was ministering in Ephesus. And Philemon lived in Colossae, which was very close to Ephesus. And that's how Philemon became a Christian. And then it says that, Paul says in this letter, that Philemon became a co-worker, co-laborer in the ministry with the Apostle Paul. So no doubt, Philemon was discipled, trained, and watched the Apostle Paul do ministry. And apparently Philemon was a mature man and grew rather quickly in his maturity. We know that by the attributes and the characteristics by which Paul attributes to him in this letter. And Philemon was a wealthy man. He owned his own home, which was kind of rare in those days and kind of rare in the Silicon Valley these days. Um, But he was a wealthy man, Philemon, and he owned slaves. But he became a Christian. His life was transformed. He's a new man. The Spirit of God is now living in him. And then Paul was separated from him. And Philemon not only was discipled by the Apostle Paul, Philemon, out of the generosity of his heart, decided to lend his services to all the Christians in his community in Colossae. And he opened up his home so that the saints could gather there for church. That doesn't mean just coming for an hour and a half on Sunday. In the early church, it probably meant a lot more than that. It probably meant during the week as well. So a, a, man of great, a man of great benevolence, generosity, hospitality, loved people, came to the realization now that he was a Christian that everything I have is a blessed gift from God and I'm just a steward over it and I need to bless others with it. And that's what he did. He opened up his home and that became the local church in Colossae. And not only that, he probably became one of the leaders there, if not an elder or pastor in the church of Colossae. And so Paul's writing a letter to Philemon, uh, his friend, a Christian, disciple of Paul, church leader, maybe pastor, elder in the church, influential man, highly regarded, godly man, respected by the Christians in his community. And Paul, in this letter in Philemon, makes an appeal to Philemon. That's the whole point of this letter. This letter is very personal. It's not highly theological. Very personal, one-on-one. It's directly written to Philemon, and basically Paul's asking one thing. And if you could choose one verse that summarizes the main point of Philemon, it's really easy to do. To summarize the main point of Philemon, it's in verse 17. So the overarching theme is forgiveness. And the one thing that Paul is asking Philemon is in verse 17. And here's his request. It's not a command. He's not exercising his apostolic authority, demanding that he obey. He's actually appealing to him as a friend and as a brother in Christ. Verse 9, I I appeal to you. Verse 10, I appeal to you. I'm not even exercising my apostolic authority. I'm just appealing to you as a brother in the Lord, as a friend, as someone who knows me, as a disciple. And my appeal to you is regarding Onesimus, your former slave. Well your slave that actually ran away. So we don't know how many slaves that Philemon had or servants. But Onesimus was a slave that belonged to Philemon, and Onesimus illegitimately fled. He ran away. He split town. He actually went almost a 1,000 miles and left Colossae and ended up in Rome to hide in the city of a million people there. 
so that he might not get caught. Not only did he leave Philemon illegitimately his slave owner or master, he also was a thief and he stole valuable things from Philemon when Philemon wasn't aware and wasn't looking. Probably to use that so that he needed money to travel. And so Onesimus fled his master Philemon, ended up in Rome, trying to hide. He's a fugitive. Philemon has legitimate rights to him. Onesimus is not saved by God's providence. Onesimus ends up running into the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is in prison, in house arrest in Rome. We don't know how that happened, but God orchestrated that to happen. Isn't that amazing? Not luck, not chance, not coincidence. That is the sovereign providential goodness of God who orchestrates all things in life for our good and for his glory. It's an important principle in this story. And so Onesimus ends up meeting the Apostle Paul. Here's the gospel preached. He is convicted of his sin. And Onesimus, the fugitive, becomes a Christian. Falls in love with Jesus. Falls in love with the Apostle Paul. And just wants to hang around Paul and shadow him all the time. And so he does. So here's Paul in house arrest. And he's got this new, born again, fired up sponge of a Christian named Onesimus. Whose God has transformed his life. And he's just there to serve Paul. Because Paul was confined, he was chained, he had limits. So maybe Onesimus was able to do many things on behalf of Paul. And Paul came to love Onesimus dearly. And as they talked and got to know each other, and tell me about yourself, Onesimus. And then probably once he became a Christian, or it could have been before, he confessed to Paul, actually, I'm a runaway slave. I'm here illegitimately. I'm an illegal immigrant. And I'm on the run. And I escaped from prison or from my master. And he confessed that to Paul. Paul came to realize that and and paul decides you know we need to do the right thing not hide you not defy the law we need to send you back to your master but that's not all we need to send you back in a right relationship with philemon i know this philemon he's a christian onesimus this is the grace of god and so now i'm going to send it back to you but not just as a slave of your master but as a fellow brother in christ And you know what? I'm going to send a letter with you directed to Philemon and give Philemon the context and encourage him to welcome you back. That's the whole point of Philemon. And so Paul's one request, one appeal of Philemon is in verse 17. If then you regard me, Philemon, as a partner, a brother in Christ, your friend, then accept him. There it is. Accept him. It's the key phrase in this letter. All the commentators say that Philemon is all about forgiveness. And ironically or interestingly, the word forgiveness is not in the book of Philemon. It's not there. But this word is, among other phrases, accept him. Lambano is the Greek word. That means to take, to receive. And then Paul puts a preposition on the front of it to intensify it. Pros lambano. Receive him. Not just receive him. Receive him intimately. Receive him truly. Welcome him. That's what the the word means. Accept doesn't do justice to this Greek word. The same Greek word, compound Greek word of receive and welcome, is is used many times in the New Testament, specifically in Romans 15, 7, where it talks about how a holy God in Christ has accepted sinners unto himself by virtue of Christ's death. Through forgiveness, through reconciliation, through redemption. Same work. So accept other believers just as Christ has also accepted you. 
It's an intimate word. It's a beautiful word. It's a powerful word. It's a specific word. Welcome him. Receive him. Literally, welcome him, get this, into your inner circle. And the emphasis here is on deep personal intimacy. Wow, that's an amazing request, but that's what it is. And really, it's a synonym for forgiveness. Forgive him and show your forgiveness towards him by welcoming him, not just into your house, but into your life, into your inner circle, and in 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 the context of a new relationship. It's no longer just master-slave. Now he's a fellow brother in Christ. And now both Philemon and Onesimus are committed to and obligated to, get this, fulfill all the one another's in the New Testament. And many of those one another's are in the letter of Colossians and Ephesians that Onesimus is bringing with him to give Philemon. Oh, Philemon, here's your personal letter. You need to accept me now in Christ as a brother in Christ. Oh, and by the way, here's Colossians and Ephesians, which are from the Apostle Paul with multitudinous commands and imperatives of all Christians to do the ministry of one another to each other in a reciprocal relationship. And so now for the first time, Philemon is going to have to, towards his slave Onesimus, see him now as a peer, a fellow brother in Christ, made in the image of God, also made new in the the image of Jesus Christ and fulfilling all these one another's, like serve one another. Imagine that. Oh, wait a minute. So now I have to serve Onesimus, my slave? Yeah, you do. That's the Christian ethic. Or also in Ephesians, submit to one another. Can you imagine? Oh, wait a minute. Here's Philemon. I have to submit to my slave. How's that going to work? God will give you the grace. You'll figure it out. It's amazing. Love one another. Bear one another's burdens. So, yeah, there was this hierarchy of a relationship they still maintained as master and slave. And at the same time, on the personal level, there was a new paradigm. It was the Christian biblical paradigm by which they needed to reciprocally... uh, Mutually minister to one another with all those one another's, which added a new supernatural dynamic to this relationship. So this is new. This is a, a huge, actually bold, startling request on the, the part of the Apostle Paul. Here's Onesimus. I know Onesimus is a runaway fugitive slave. According to law, uh, owes you money. He needs to pay restitution. He could go to jail. He could legally be whipped and beaten. Yes, he could be crucified and deserves capital punishment, the death penalty for being a fugitive, according to Roman law. Yes, that is all true. But in Christ, Philemon, I want you to do something different. I want you to obey a higher law and accept him, forgive him in Christ as an equal brother in Jesus. Wow. That's really the main point of the book of Philemon. So really it is all about forgiveness. And everything coming before verse 17, everything coming after 17, uh, explicates and explains and prepares for and complements this idea of what it means to accept someone by virtue of supernatural forgiveness. And by the way, this is in the context of Christian and Christian. This isn't talking about the forgiveness that an unbeliever is supposed to extend towards an unbeliever or towards uh, uh, some capricious serial murderer that's a different kind of forgiveness it really is in terms of the context this is christian to christian kind of forgiveness and it's very specific and so there is relevance for us so as we think about this and what paul's requiring and asking of philemon we can apply this to our own life and think about okay i'm a christian how do i apply this 
to my life? How do I apply this to the immediate circle, the relationships I have in my life of other Christians, starting in my own, get this, home and family? My Christian parents, my Christian siblings, my Here's the most difficult of all, my Christian spouse. Or maybe it's your Christian children. Maybe that's the most difficult of all. Also difficult at times is those fellow Christians at church. So that's what this plays into. So that's why this is so beneficial for us. And we'll be able to glean some principles on forgiveness from this wonderful book. Before I go further into the book, I just wanted to read this. Richard Dawkins, some of you may be familiar with Richard Dawkins. So he's probably the world's most famous atheist today and was launched into that category probably in 2006. The professor of Oxford in biology, actually biological evolution or evolutionary biology, Oxford, 77 years old, considered one of the smartest men on planet Earth. And he was launched into the limelight in 2006 when he wrote a best-selling book, even here in the United States, even though he's in the UK. 2006, the book was called God, The God Delusion. It's a mammoth thing. I've read the whole thing. It's like 400-plus pages maybe. It's got one theme. There is no God. He's not just an atheist. He's an anti-theist. He hates God. And basically, he hates those who believe in God. And he makes that very clear in his book, The God Delusion. And the theme of the book is that God doesn't exist, totally uh, unscientific. Evolution is true. Atheism is true. Atheism is beautiful. Atheism is logical. Atheism is scientific. Uh, believing in God is ridiculous, foolish, uneducated. Uh, and if you do, you're deluded. Hence the title of his book, The God Delusion. If you believe in God, you are deluded. You're a blinded. You're a buffoon. It's incredibly insulting. And that book just shot up into the charts, and I think it became a bestseller. 2006. Well, I read the whole thing, like I said. And then I've watched uh, Dawkins in a lot of interviews over the years. And every time he gets an opportunity in an interview, he likes to quote one paragraph from his book. And he, he just gets a kick out of it. He thinks it's hilarious. He thinks it's profound. thinks it's erudite. Here's the paragraph that he likes to read. He just pulls his book out. Oh, listen to this. And he reads this. Every chance he gets. Quote. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And then he gets this little grin on his face. Ha, ha, ha. Well, he means it, and to us it should be shocking and offensive because it's about the most blatant uh, blasphemous statement ever put in print in human history. But there's a, a common theme here. The God of the Old Testament is hateful. The God of the Old Testament is totally unloving. And specifically says the God of the Old Testament is unforgiving. And there is no greater lie than that. And he, he's popular all over the world. He is in demand as a speaker. So he's going around blaspheming our dear, sweet God. 
and Jesus Christ. You should be offended by that. I am. Speaks in total ignorance, but also in just from a heart full of vile hatred. Contrary to that, that the God of the Old Testament is unforgiving and vindictive and petty. Bible is says just the opposite. God is a God of love. God is a God of forgiveness. That's clear all throughout the Bible. God is a God of forgiveness. Listen to what Moses said through the inspired words in 1400 B.C. in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, when God revealed himself specifically to Moses. It says literally God came down and stood in the midst of Moses. Can you imagine? I, wow, what does that mean? The Lord God came down and stood in the midst of Moses, and here is what he told Moses. Quote, The Lord proclaimed, The Lord, or Yahweh, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's God defining himself. It's the exact opposite of what Dawkins said. That last part is amazing. Who forgives the Lord God is the one... Who forgives, and then he puts three things. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's three kinds of sin. Their implications and ramifications. The, the legal elements of it, the, the wickedness of its nature, and the, the personal detriment it has to a person. Very specific. In other words, God the living God, the creator, he is a savior and he forgives sinners and he forgives them totally and completely. That is the God of the Bible. So God is a forgiving God. The Bible does say that God is love and forgiveness is a manifestation of his love. As a matter of fact, one of the main reasons Jesus came to earth, if I were to ask you, why did Jesus come down? Why was he born? Why did he come 2,000 years ago? Oh, to die on the cross. Yeah, but for What? He didn't come to die just on the cross. He came to die on the cross for a reason, to fulfill a purpose. So what was the purpose fulfilled? What was the intent of dying on the cross? Well, let's see, to absorb the wrath of the Father. Yeah, and? Well, to undo the works of the devil. Yeah, and what else? Well, to reveal truth. Yeah, keep going. He died on the cross to provide forgiveness of sin. That, that is the very heart and purpose of Christianity. That's the whole point of the Bible. The Bible is about God the Creator, the God the Creator of all souls, the judge of all souls, whether you believe it or not. And the main point of the whole book of the Bible is that God is holy, people are wicked and sinful, they deserve punishment, they deserve God's wrath, they deserve eternal hell, they deserve separation from Him, they deserve consequences. And yet God is such a God of love that even though it wasn't deserved, He willingly came down Himself to provide a way that sinners could be forgiven and united and reconciled with God the Creator. That is good news. Securing that forgiveness, not because we are worth it or deserve it, not that we can earn it, but by virtue of just God's good grace, His love for His creation. So forgiveness is at the heart of Christianity. It's not a secondary tangential issue. Forgiveness is what Christianity is about. 
That's clear in the Bible. Jesus came to die on the cross to provide forgiveness for sinners. We talked about this Good Friday when Jesus was on the cross for six hours being crucified. One of the first things he said was, Father, forgive them. The first words out of his mouth. It has been said, and it's totally legitimate and true, that you, Christian, are most like God when you offer forgiveness for someone else. Really. You are most like God when you offer forgiveness towards someone else. It is utterly profound, that reality. By the way, unforgiveness that I'm talking about, it's, it is not natural. Unforgiveness is unnatural to unbelievers. People who are not Christians, people who are not born again, people who don't know God through Jesus Christ, people who don't know the Bible, people who don't have the Spirit of God living in them, people who haven't uh, been adopted into the family of God supernaturally, they cannot forgive the way that God desires that a person forgive. Unbelievers can't forgive supernaturally. Let me say that again. Unbelievers cannot forgive supernaturally. Unbelievers can forgive on a human natural level because of common grace and they've been made in God's image. But it's not the same thing. There is a supernatural kind of forgiveness, a higher level of forgiveness, and it's totally different and only Christians have that ability and capacity to do it. And that's the kind of forgiveness that Paul is expecting and even pleading for with Philemon towards Onesimus because he knows that Philemon is a Christian and Onesimus is a Christian. And so therefore, the capacity, everything that is required is there for Philemon to supernaturally forgive Onesimus, this sinner, even though he doesn't deserve it, because Philemon is a Christian. So unbelievers, they can't forgive. As a matter of fact, true unforgiveness is totally contrary to the heart and the natural disposition of an unbeliever. The natural disposition and heart of an unbeliever is the exact opposite of forgiveness, which would be vengeance, hostility, hatred, retaliation, anger. How do I know that? Because that's in the Bible. Romans chapter 3 talks about unbelievers and it just delineates all these adjectives describing the heart, the inside of an unbeliever. I don't care who they are. If they're the nicest unbeliever in the world, that's God's diagnosis literally of their heart and of their mind because it is regenerate, it is dark, it is evil to the core. And he lists all these things about the human heart. And listed in there is just hatred, wickedness. Their mouth is an open grave. They have the tongue of a, an asp or, a, asp or a, a vicious killing snake. The unregenerate heart. That's really God's diagnosis of an unbeliever. And so if you're a Christian, you're not like that anymore. If you're not a Christian, that's God's diagnosis of your heart. From God's point of view, the Creator, He knows. Before I was a Christian for 19 years, that was my heart. That was my biography. But not so for the Christian. Christians are totally different. They've been made new. God has saved the Christian, adopted them into the family of God, have made them a new creation. And get this, that's put the Spirit of God literally inside of every believer to reside in them. So every Christian has the Spirit of God living in them, the same Spirit who created the world out of nothing, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit who is equal with the Father and the Son in terms of power and glory and deity, lives in every Christian. Absolutely Amazing. We have the resident supernatural power of heaven living in us to forgive. So for a Christian, unforgiveness is not an option. 
That's why God demands it. It's all over the Bible. These are commands for Christians to forgive. Let me give you just a couple. Some of them are a little confusing, shocking, surprising, alarming, frightening. First one's in Matthew 6. Look at it. It's familiar. It's part of the Lord's Prayer. Some of you that grew up Catholic or Lutheran, you got it memorized. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, the kingdom of God, thy will be done on earth, heaven, and give us the day to live. But I grew up Catholic. Here it is, Matthew 6. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. This is how true believers pray. This is how you should pray if you're, if you're a believer. Verse 9, our Father who art in heaven, you give God his due. He is glorious. You pray for his will. You pray for daily sustenance. You should be praying every single day, verse 11. And then verse 12. As you're praying every day, after recognizing God for who he is, a regular part of your prayer life every single day should be confession and repentance to God. Every single day. That is required by Jesus. Verse 12. And when you pray, you pray and forgive us our debt. God, forgive me and my debts to you. God, forgive me for my sin against you. Forgive me for my transgressions against you, my iniquity. Every single day. Every day, Jesus? Yes, every single day. Because we're, we're sinners. We're saved, but we're sinners. We have sin living in us. Sin indwells us, Paul said. It will never go away in this life. That's why Jesus said you need to be praying every single day and part of your prayer every single day is a recognition of your own sinfulness. And you're pleading with God to forgive you in light of the death of Christ. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven others. So we need to ask for forgiveness every single day and we are obligated by God to forgive those around us, especially fellow believers. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 14. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Now that sounds like forgiveness is conditional. Let me read it again. For if you forgive others for their transgressions. Okay. If I do, then what? Well, then your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Wow. So the Father forgiving me is conditioned upon me forgiving others? Yes. Verse 15, Jesus said, But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. That, that's frightening. Well, that doesn't fit into my uh, package soteriology, my free justification by grace apart from faith, and uh, all my sins are forgiven past, present, and future, and the only condition is repenting of my sin and believing in Jesus, and that's it, I'm, I'm free. Well, let me read that again. If you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Wow. How do we explain that? By the way, who gets into heaven? Do sinners get into heaven? Well, yeah, I'm a sinner, and if I die, I think I'm going to heaven. Well, who gets into heaven? Well, forgiven sinners. And those, the only forgiven sinners are those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you can't have unforgiven sin and get into heaven. Who goes to hell? People with unforgiven sins. That's the only people who go to hell. Those with unforgiven sin. Wait, let me read verse 15 again. If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Well, this is frightening. Well, I could go to the book of James where it says the same thing. Show mercy 
towards others. And if you show mercy towards others, then God will show mercy to you. That also sounds conditional. Again, it's confusing. Well, what's Jesus really saying? Well, all he's saying is, if you're a true believer and you believe in the gospel, then yes, all of your sins are forgiven. And if you're a true Christian, then according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God has made you a new creation. Old things pass away, all things have become new. And if you're a real Christian, God has put his spirit inside of you, the supernatural Holy Spirit of God. And the supernatural Spirit of God gives you the capacity, the ability, the supernatural heavenly resources to actually forgive other people. And it will be characteristic of your life as you live your life. And it will become a pattern of your life. And so that's why it's expected and commanded and demanded of Christians that they be forgiving people continually and forevermore without excuse. They have no a Christian has no reason not to be a forgiving person. So really what it is, it's the fruit of your life. That's all Jesus is saying. If you are truly a believer, a follower of Christ, and you know God personally, then you will be characterized by ongoing forgiveness towards others. Why? Because God has forgiven you of all of your sins. That's what Paul says in Ephesians and also in Colossians. We just read Colossians 3. Be loving towards one another. Be tenderhearted and forgiving towards one another. Present tense, ongoing, continual. This is a pattern of your life. You call yourself a Christian? I want to see, are you a forgiving person? Because the last part of that verse is forgiving others as Christ has also forgiven you. Why must Christians forgive other people? Because Christ has forgiven us. That's why. That's the condition. And God has given us the capacity and the ability to forgive. This is required of Christians. It is not optional. God is grieved if you don't forgive. God is grieved if we are disobedient in this area. There's no excuse for it. And if you don't forgive, if you're a Christian and you're an unforgiving person and you just hold on to things, here are some consequences, four of them, five of them. I'll just share them with you briefly. This would be a good, you know how Paul says in Corinthians, examine yourself. That's supposed to be a regular discipline in our life. The Christian discipline. <laughs> Check out the, the next Christian discipline book you find and, and look up and see if it's got a chapter. Examine yourself. Because that is a Christian discipline. It's supposed to be. We don't like that one. Well, here's a way to examine ourselves. In keeping with some things that gleaned out of the Bible. If you're a Christian, but you are characterized by not being a forgiving person, here's five things to watch out for. Or that may be true in your life. Uh, number one, if you don't forgive, then you will be imprisoned by your past. You will be imprisoned by your past. You will be enslaved to what happened in your history. And you know what? You'll always be looking back. Always be looking back. Always regressing. That's backwards. You know what? That is the exact opposite of sanctification. Sanctification is all about going forward in the good news of Christ. It's moving to the future. And when you're holding on to unforgiveness, you're going backwards and you become a prisoner. You're, you're chained to it. You're enslaved to it. And you keep ruminating and thinking upon and meditating upon and get uh, overwhelmed and it consumes your life and your thought life and your personality and your characteristics and your disposition, your whole heart, your mind, everything about you. And you're living in the past and you keep playing it over and over and over again in your mind. It's totally contrary to how Christ has acted towards you and me. So it undermines sanctification. You're in prison to your past. Number two, 
uh, if you continue to hold on forgiveness, you will become a bitter person. And uh, Hebrews 12, 14 and 15 says, if you don't forgive, then you'll develop a root of bitterness, the root, and it goes down deep into your soul, the inner, inner recesses of your soul, bitter. And the bitterness uh, will spread like cancer, gangrene, poison, disease in your body, in your soul, and it'll affect everything about you. It'll affect your thought life, your emotions, your will, how you relate to people, your physical stamina. You will become a bitter person. You will become sarcastic, caustic, hardened, cold, dry, cynical, skeptical, biting, gossiping, really, angry. Those all flow out of a heart of bitterness. Bitterness is directly related to unforgiveness. But the Christian has the ability and capacity to forgive. And when you do, it is absolutely liberating. Absolutely liberating. So you could be imprisoned by your past. You could become bitter. Number three, if you are an unforgiving person, then you just open the door and you welcome Satan into your soul. Really, literally. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and sin not. Let, don't, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, keep short accounts with people. Don't let unforgiveness go into the next day. Don't let the sun set on it. Because if you do, you'll develop bitterness. It'll affect your attitude. It'll undermine your spiritual armor. And then Satan will move in. That's where Satan most effectively moves into the heart and the mind and the life of Christians is when there's a wide gaping door open of unforgiveness. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, don't give the devil an opportunity. Because that's how Satan operates. Prowling around looking for uh, someone to devour. Oh, there's an unforgiving Christian. Boom, pounce. And he feeds on that root of bitterness. And he has incredible success towards Christians. You want to dispel any demonic influence in your life, any satanic influence in your life, then to be a forgiving person. If you're having a hard time with it, you can pray the prayer that one uh, dear saint did to Jesus. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I, I want to forgive, but I can't forgive. Help me. Help me forgive, God. Be, make it turn it into a very specific prayer. So if you're an unforgiving Christian, you'll be imprisoned by your past. You'll become bitter. You'll welcome Satan into your life. And then, uh, number four, you won't be able to fulfill the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, and 23. Be impossible. If you are walking in the Spirit, that means being obedient to the Spirit of God. That means living under the umbrella of God's requirements in Scripture, in keeping with the Spirit of God who lives in your heart, then you will be characterized by the fruits of the Spirit which are attitudes towards other people. That's what they are. They're relational fruits. I don't know if you've ever noticed that and examined that. Every one of those fruits has to do with relationship with other people. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And then the opposite of those are the deeds of the flesh. And those speak of your relations with other people in terms of relationships breaking down. And you cannot possibly have a heart of unforgiveness and be walking in the Spirit at the same time. So you won't be exuding and exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit in your life if you are an unforgiving person. 
And then finally, number five, if you are not a forgiving person, then you're, you will break your fellowship with God the Father. Even though you know him, he's your father, you have a relationship with him, you will sever or break fellowship with him. I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation. If you're a true Christian, you won't. And I'm not saying that when you get to heaven, then all of your sins will be exposed to everybody for all eternity, because they won't. But right now, if you're an unforgiving person in with a hardened heart and disobedience, you are breaking your fellowship with the Father. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. God is light. And if you're a Christian, you will walk in the light. But if you're walking in darkness, meaning disobedience and sin, you're not walking as a child of light. And you're breaking fellowship with God, and you're also breaking fellowship with other Christians if you do that. And you will impair, undermine, subvert your relationship with God the Father. You won't be able to have sweet fellowship with God the Father if you're an unforgiving person. You will, in the words of the Apostle Paul, grieve the Spirit. An unforgiving Christian is someone who grieves the Spirit. Well, Philemon was none of these bad things because Paul commends him, if you look in his letter there, he acknowledges that Philemon has the ability to forgive and to forgive supernaturally. That's why, Otherwise, Paul would not have made this request. You've got to be a Christian, first of all, to do what Paul's asking Philemon to do. Not many people would be able to do this. And not only that, you have to be a pretty mature Christian to pull this off. You Forgive Onesimus, the slave... He ran away. He made a mockery of me. He stole from me. And you want me to forgive him and then embrace him as a brother? Yeah, absolutely. And the reason is, Onesimus, because of your character and quality as a mature, loving, true, born-again man of God. Uh, Look at verse 4 of Philemon. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. Uh, Paul is thankful for Philemon. He knows him. Verse 5, he's thankful for him because I hear of your love Philemon was a loving person. That was his reputation. And of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus. There it is. You are truly a Christian. You believed in the gospel. Not only that, you love Jesus Christ. And your love for Christ spills over unto other people. And that's that's your demeanor towards other people. You love them. So Paul knows Philemon has the capacity to be a very forgiving person. Verse 6, and I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the fellowship. That's a key word there. That's in terms of his relationship and attitude towards other believers. Fellowship means koinonia. It means to share your love with other Christians. At essence, it means to share, to have something in common. We share relationship with Christ. We share our love with Christ. We share everything we have with fellow believers. That is fellowship. When you're fellowshipping with a Christian, what are you doing? You are sharing something in common with them. From something as superficial as a meal to something as practical as money or a, a car or something as profound as your very life. That's fellowship. And he's commending Philemon for having a heart knit towards other believers. Onesimus will be no exception through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. I want you to refresh one more, and that's Onesimus. Therefore, I have enough confidence in Christ. You're going to do what's proper. And I appeal to you. Not as an apostle, but I appeal to you as a friend. And then he requests that he accept him as he comes. And he trusts that at the end of the letter that Onesimus is going to do that very thing. 
And that's how we need to be. Now, to prepare our hearts for communion, we need to examine ourselves. Paul, Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 11. We, we come to the Lord's table. It reminds us we, we partake of the bread and the cup, and we're re- reminded of who Jesus is. He's the God-man. He's God incarnate. He died on the cross sacrificially for sinners. And then we drink of the cup. That's He shed his blood. He absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf as our substitute so that we can have forgiveness of sin, so that we can be reconciled with God, so that we can be in the family of God, so that we can be blessed by God. And this is cause for rejoicing. And so communion is cause for rejoicing. And forgiveness is at the heart of that. So I want to share just a couple of verses with you uh, before we partake. I'll have the guys come down in just a second if you hold on. I read those five susceptibilities if you don't forgive. I want to give you six more real quick, just for self-examination. And these are six signs you could be stuck in unforgiveness as a Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, this doesn't apply to you. If, if you're not a Christian, none of your sins are forgiven. I'm just going to tell you the truth. John 3.36 says, The wrath of God abides on you wherever you go. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is coming down and pressing on you because you haven't given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no forgiveness for you, but only judgment. The good news is you can have total forgiveness by bowing to the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, admitting you're a sinner, and he will forgive all of your sins. So, these six signs are for us as Christians to prepare our hearts, do some evaluation before we go into communion. Number one, uh, six signs that you are stuck in unforgiveness. Well, before I do these first six, here's a good exercise. Right now, think in your own mind. Think of somebody that you're mad at, you don't like, or that you have unforgiveness towards. Stop. Don't tell anybody. You just That's horrible. But if somebody came to your mind, wow, that's pretty revealing especially if they're a fellow Christian. Six signs you're stuck in forgiveness. Number one, you keep talking about the past over and over and over again, and this person hurt you and they offended you and they did this, and you're going to into minute detail, and, here, and then they did this, and you'll never, can you believe they did this? It's like, wow, when, when did this happen last week? No, this was 27 years ago. Wow, I wish I was exaggerating. I'm in too many counseling sessions where that's true of fellow Christians. Just all you got to do is Listen. And if they're rehearsing the past with over and over and over again of all these grievances again, that's a problem. Wow, you've got a problem with unforgiveness. Very damaging to the soul. You keep talking about the past. Number two, you complain a lot. Complain, 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 complain. Complain, 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 complain. Complain, 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 complain. It's a violation of Philippians chapter 2. God said, if you're a Christian, don't complain. Stop it. Knock it off. Literally, stop complaining. Could be a sign that you got a problem with forgiveness. Could be. Number three, uh, it could be that you have a problem of unforgiveness or you're stuck in unforgiveness. If you you don't talk much of the things you've done wrong, you're in conversation with somebody all the time, and they never hint at anything they've ever done wrong. That's revealing. Because they've done horrible things. As a matter of fact, 
The sins we commit against God are infinitely worse than sins we commit against each other. They are. That's God's point of view. We're all guilty. So if you don't talk much of things you've done wrong, hmm, that's revealing. Number four, a sign that you're stuck in unforgiveness. You're spiritually dry, unmotivated, and inconsistent in your Christian life. You're spiritually dry. You just feel cold. You're not motivated. Oh, I don't want to read my Bible. Oh, I don't want to pray. Oh, I don't want to go to church. Oh, I don't want to serve. Oh, I don't feel like doing it. could be you've got an issue of unforgiveness. Not necessarily, but it could be. Number five, one of the signs that you're stuck in unforgiveness, your prayer life is weak. Could be non-existent for a time. And it lacks confession and repentance regularly. When's the last time you prayed? How often do you pray? Uh, Whatever. Okay. When you pray, how often are you confessing your sin and repenting on a regular basis to a holy God? Because Jesus said to do that in Matthew 6. If confession and repentance is missing in your prayer life, could be an indication you've got an issue with unforgiveness somewhere. And then finally, number six. You could be stuck in unforgiveness if you are not characterized by walking by the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness. That is is supposed to be used as a, a prism by which we examine the Christian life and see are we living these attributes characteristically. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, joy. If that's missing from your life on a regular basis, wow. There's nothing that undermines the fruits of the Spirit in your life quicker, longer, more than unforgiveness. With that, I'll ask the men to go ahead and pass out the elements, and I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. Or Matthew chapter 5, just one chapter before that earlier passage we read on forgiveness from Jesus. So this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching to the multitudes. For us, this applies to us today as Christians. This is universal truth that applies to all believers. And Jesus just goes through habits of practical spirituality and also attitudes. He cuts to the heart of the matter. But listen to what he says in Matthew 5, 21. Jesus is talking to the big crowd there. These are all religious people. They profess to know God and Yahweh, so very similar to all of us here. You're in church for a reason, I assume, because you felt religious and spiritual this morning. want to be with God's people. So very parallel here. These were people who hungered, at least on the outward side of spiritual truth. Here's Jesus, the great teacher. said, you have heard that the ancients were told... Now, that's not the Old Testament. The ancients were told. That's like the rabbis and rabbinical tradition that they were being taught. It was a distortion of the Bible. He's not saying Scripture says. That's not what he's saying. You have heard that it has been said. The ancients were told. The Pharisees are telling you this because Rabbi so-and-so from two centuries ago made this up. He took a Bible verse and he twisted it. That's what Jesus is saying. He's setting the record straight. In other words, don't believe this anymore, but rather believe this. Verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told that the rabbis have said and perpetuated 
You shall not commit murder. Okay, that's out of the Bible. What's wrong with that? But then he goes on. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. So Jesus is actually getting to the spirit of the Mosaic law. Don't read it superficially. Really what Moses was saying in the Old Testament here with the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit murder. God wanted to diagnose what was at the issue or the foundation or the heart. And a person doesn't just murder in a vacuum. Murder is not the beginning of something. Murder is the end of something. A long process of contemplating, meditating, planning, before that being bitter and angry, and before that being unforgiving and having been offended. Just this long chain of events stirring up in the evil human heart. So Jesus is really exposing what is at the heart of murder. It's anger. Being angry at someone in a prolonged manner is very dangerous. Being angry continually at someone is called unforgiveness. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, uh, you good for nothing. So your anger is manifest in the way you talk to people. You shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Wow. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, therefore, if you are being religious, and this does apply to us today. Therefore, if you go to church, therefore, if you're taking communion, therefore, if you're saying your prayers, therefore, if you're giving your offering, doing all these things, much of which we are, we are expected to do, some of which you do because you're trying to pres- uh, impress other people or we're trying to impress God himself. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Okay, wait. Oh, yeah. I have a broken relationship. Sister so-and-so, she's mad at me. I think she's offended at me. Or uh, brother so-and-so. Yeah, and that hasn't been resolved. We haven't talked about it. It's gotten pretty bad. And you remember that. You're conscious of it. Whoa, Jesus says stop. Stop. I don't want your religion. I don't want your religious practice right now. You don't have the heart, the, the right heart. Get right with God. So therefore, verse 24, leave your offering there before the altar and go. That's a command. And first be reconciled to your brother. See, this is a fellow believer. So this is a good time for us to think about, okay, do I have any broken relationships with fellow believers that have been going on for a protracted period of time and I've just neglected it and it's been a long time and it's detrimental and it's creating unforgiveness and bitterness in my heart and a coldness of my heart and I'm just too stubborn to do anything about it. We all need to evaluate ourselves. Or you're conscious that another believer has that attitude towards you. Things are not right. Jesus says, stop, stop. This is a priority. Take care of it now. No excuses. And go. Well, well, wait a minute. They're, I'm not mad at them. They're mad at me. Verse 23. They haven't come to me. And that's why Jesus said, go. They're mad at you. You go. But they started it. Go. But they're the one that's mad at me. Go. They haven't come to me yet. Go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and present your offer. See, God, Jesus doesn't say, no, stop the religion. Stop the practice. Stop it. No. God wants 
you to worship him properly in all of its manifestations, but we need the right priorities. And priority number one is take care of your heart and your relationships with other believers. Because why other believers? Because they're in the family of God. These are children of God. He is their father. And if you're a parent, you know the, the priority of this. I've got four. I don't want my four kids at each other's throats in my house without it being managed. We want harmony in our home. That's 1 Corinthians 7. God's design or intent for the home is harmony and peace. 1 Corinthians 7. That's what God wants in your home, in your family life. God wants peace in the home. It's supposed to be a gift and a blessing from him. We can do something about it if we take initiative. Verse 6, make friends quickly with your opponent while you're on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over Verse 26, truly I say to you, you will not come out there. So anyway, there are severe consequences for this. So this is very relevant, very practical for us to think about. We need to keep short accounts. We've got to get back to not letting the sun go down in our anger. We need to start thinking about those we have a problem with or have a problem with us that are fellow believers. And if we've got too much of a hardened heart to go talk to them and reconcile things, we need to start by confessing that sin to God. God, forgive me for being unforgiving. And God, soften my heart with your Holy Spirit. And get your nose in the word. And then ask for God's grace and courage to take initiative. And go get it right. And accept them. Just as Christ has also accepted us. That's what we celebrate today. The the glorious blessing and truth of forgiveness in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just going to give you a minute to pray in your own heart right now. Examine your heart. I will do the same. And let the Holy Spirit be your counselor, your advocate, your teacher. And if you have sin to confess, get right with God. And then we'll take communion together. Well, I have good news for you. A wonderful promise. I guarantee it. Because it's in God's word. If you have a newfound attitude of forgiveness towards someone... Today, a fellow believer, you will be set free. And it will have a major impact in your life. And you'll be blessed as a result. So rejoice in that great truth. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for our time together. and Just a wonderful day of fellowship. We thank you for the Lord's Supper. The reminder, Jesus, of why you came to earth. You came to die for sinners. That they might be forgiven because of your work. We thank you for that awesome reality. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who lives in us and enables us to have a softened heart and forgive fellow believers the same way you have forgiven us. And uh, we thank you for the many blessings that go along with true forgiveness. We commit it all to you. We thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.